Our reading this evening is Genesis chapter 42, which you can find on page 47 of the Church Bibles. So it's Genesis chapter 42, starting at verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all his people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, you're spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my Lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, you've come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were 12 brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father and one is no more. Joseph said to them, it's just as I told you, you're spies. And this is how you'll be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison, so that your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If you are not, then as as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men... Let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them, since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain to put each man's silver back in his sack and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them 
They said, the man who is lord over the land spoke harshly to us and treated us as though we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we're honest men, we're not spies. We were 12 brothers, sons of one father. One is no more and the youngest is now with our father in Canaan. Then the man who is lord over the land said to us, this is how I will know whether you're honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for your starving households and go. But bring your youngest brother to me so I will know that you're not spies but honest men. Then I will give your brother back to you and you can trade in the land. As they were emptying their sacks, there in each man's sack was his pouch of silver. When they and their father saw the money pouches, they were frightened. Their father Jacob said to them, You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may put both of my sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care, and I will bring him back. But Jacob said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you're taking, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. On the 31st of August, 1866, the American boat, the General Sherman, ran aground on the Taidong River in Korea. On board was Robert Germain Thomas, a Welsh missionary to China who had become absolutely, you could almost say obsessed with taking the gospel into Korea. He had had uh, the Bible translated into Korean. He had Bibles printed up, had them on board the General Sherman, uh, and they were going up the Taidong River in order uh, to preach the good news of Jesus to the Korean people. Uh, there was all kinds of uh, international, um, what's the word I'm looking for, friction uh, at the time, and the American boat was not welcomed by the Korean government. Uh, and exactly what happened to the General Sherman is slightly confusing, but it seems that a, a mixture of government unwillingness for them to land and, and, and local anger at uh, the presence of the boat uh, resulted in a standoff in which uh, the American boat opened fire on the, on the riverbank. Uh, the, the locals were, were furious. They sent a fire ship uh, that set the General Sherman on fire. Uh, they uh, slaughtered everyone who escaped from the burning boat. And so ended Robert Thomas's missionary career. Dead on a riverbank, on the Taidong River in Korea. Apparently, having completely failed. As we continue our story of Joseph, it might be helpful to just get a little time check on how long it has been since chapter 37. Well, I mean, it's been five weeks for us. And each reading seems to get longer and longer, doesn't it? But for Joseph, it's been 25 years 
25 years. Imagine that. 17 when he had his dreams, when his brothers decided against murdering him because they could make more out of him as a slave. From the age of 17 to 30, he was either a slave or a prisoner, and most of it, he was a prisoner. We know that because we read last week, didn't we, that he was 30 years old when he entered Pharaoh's service. So he enters Pharaoh's service at 30, and then as he begins, there are seven years of plenty, we've been told that, and then the years of famine come. Which means that the events of of this chapter, uh, where there's this terrible uh, famine in, uh, uh, in the land where Jacob and his kids are living, you've got to think that must be at least eight years after Joseph's 30th birthday, thus 25 years. Can you remember what you were doing 25 years ago? KO? <laughs> Not existing, that's what you were doing. Um, it's been a long time. Uh, and even though Joseph has had this period of prosperity and fruitfulness in Egypt, actually the best he can say about it is that it's allowed him to forget his family. But God isn't finished yet. And you notice it particularly in verse 3. I mean, the writer of Genesis is incredibly spare and, and, and incredibly clever in the way that he puts things together. We know that there's a terrible famine. We're not really told much about what's going on with his family, but we're straight in there uh, with uh, Jacob, uh, with a, uh, you know, this sort of fantastic way of speaking to his kids. Why are you just looking at each other? I've heard there's grain in Egypt. Go and get some. And then verse 3, then 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. Jacob is saying to his sons, go down to Egypt. Their identity up until this point has simply been that they are Jacob's sons. But the writer just goes, it's Joseph's brothers going down to Egypt. There's a sign that something significant is happening. Something's turning. Something's changing. Something's beginning to move. They go. But Joseph didn't send Benjamin. Well, who's Benjamin? Benjamin. Benjamin hasn't appeared in the narrative at all yet. He's there in the summary, chapter 35, of of, uh, Jacob's children. So we know about Benjamin. Uh, He was the other child born to Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. Uh, And in that phrase, you see much of the trouble that has happened all the way through. Jacob's got more than one wife. It's a complete mess. You should never simply read the facts that are recorded for us in the narratives of the Old Testament and think that somehow, um, you know, what's happening is being commended. Every time polygamy is mentioned in the Old Testament, it is with at least a hint of disdain and with with a note of impending tragedy. And that's what happens with Jacob and his family, isn't it? We've seen that. There is this terrible mess. 
His parenting style has been so warped that ten brothers have tried to kill one. But after Joseph is sold off, Benjamin doesn't seem to have been around then, uh, he has another son with Rachel. His name is Benjamin. And he says, I'm not sending him down. There's that sort of hint of when my favorite son goes off with this ten, he doesn't tend to come home. There's an echo, a reminder of what's already happened with Joseph. But down they go. And then we see verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, note again, that's how they're described. They bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Now, there's something slightly comic about this interaction, isn't there? Joseph's talking to his brothers. He knows all about them, but they don't recognize him. That pattern that we've seen time and again in in Genesis of recognition, of of non-recognition, of mistaken identity. Once again, here the brothers are not recognizing And so the whole conversation is skewed. They don't realize who they're talking to. They don't really know what's going on. And to start with, we can't quite see entirely why. Um, I suppose we imagine perhaps that um, Joseph is wearing that sort of you know, pointy-eyed Egyptian makeup and, and, and the sort of thing that um, you sort of imagine high officials in, in, in Pharaoh's kingdom would have on. Um, <coughs> But what we, what we realize as we go through, there's a hint of it uh, in uh, verse uh, 15, where he, he says, uh, as surely as Pharaoh lives, and he says it again in verse 17, as surely as Pharaoh lives, which is a very strange thing for a Hebrew to say. But then we realize that actually it's probably because uh, of what's happening uh, in, uh, uh, that we see in verse 23. They didn't realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. So where Jacob had disguised himself and disguised his voice with his father, where Leah had been disguised and sent in to the marriage bed with Jacob. So Joseph is disguised, hidden from them by a different culture, a different language. And so they come and they bow down with their faces to the ground. And Joseph recognized them. And you have to be thinking, what is he going to do 25 years on after the way that they treated him? What is he going to do to these people who sit in the palm of his hand? He has all the power. And that becomes evident, doesn't it, as you, as you read on. As he questions them. I don't... <laughs> memes are terrible, aren't they? They get into your head. All I can hear when uh, I read what he says, you know, you're spies, and they say, no, no, we're, 
We're honest men. All I can think of is Hacker the dog. We're just normal men. We're just innocent men. If that means nothing to you, Google it. It's the most famous snort on the internet. Um, the uh, Hacker's co-host, as she tries to keep a straight face uh, as he says that to her. But, but there they are trying to persuade him that they're innocent because he has the power of life and death over them. You're spies, he says. You've come to spy out. He literally says, the nakedness of the land. You've come to see what you should not see. You've come to find out where the land is undefended. You've come with hostile intent, and I can destroy you like that. But what is going to happen? Just look with me at verse 9. There are Joseph's brothers on their face before him then he remembered his dreams about them he remembered his dream in one sense this is the turning point of the whole story we've had graphs of sort of ups and downs in Joseph's own life but in terms of where the whole story is going this is the moment this just points us back to to, to a detail right at the beginning do you remember why was it that Joseph's brothers hated him so much while he was dad's favorite but he kept having these annoying dreams in which his brothers were bowing down to him and actually as they uh, you know set about trying to do him in they actually make reference to how, you know, this dreamer, this will stop this dreamer. He dreamt about his brothers bowing down to him. And now as they are there on their faces in front of him, he remembers his dream. And everything that happens from this moment on is because of that. All his brothers wanted to do was to prevent the very thing that they have brought about. They sold him into slavery. They persuaded their father that he was dead so that they would never have to bow down to him. But if they hadn't done what they did, this moment would never have come. Quietly and in the background, but relentlessly, God is bringing about his purpose. And it is his purpose, astonishingly, for the blessing of those who sought to do evil. And in this moment, Joseph realizes it. And you don't see the whole of his interrogation in chapter 42. Actually, you see more of it in chapter 43. You realize that he's been asking them all kinds of questions. Tell me about your brother. Tell me about your father. Is your father still alive? Strange questions for a foreign dignitary to be asking these 10 brothers. But he insists on them bringing Benjamin to him. Now, if you get inside the story, that makes perfect sense. For two reasons. One, these ten are his half-brothers. They, have, they share a father but not a mother. He's never met his only full brother. And he wants to meet him. 
But I think there's a bit more to it as well. He wants to know that they're telling him the truth. He wants to know that Benjamin is safe, that they haven't done to Benjamin what they've done to him. And so there's this sort of dance he puts them through. First of all, he says, I'm going to put you all in prison. I'll send one of you back to your father. You can come back with Benjamin. He puts them all in prison. Uh, And then, very interestingly, verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. So right at the heart of what Joseph's doing is this sense that he has to do right before God. He's remembering his dream. He knows now that he is part of this great plan. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here while the rest of you go and take grain back. He's not treating them the way that they deserve. He's not treating them ill for the ill that they have treated him. He wants insurance. He wants to meet Benjamin, but he sends nine back. And he sends them back with their silver. Their grain has been given to them freely. An act of astonishing open-handed grace. And it seems to them that it's going to bring about their destruction. Do you notice that? When they, when they t- open their grain, verse 27, one of them opens his sack to get feed for his donkey and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God has done to us? Do you begin to see the irony? Who's done it? Joseph's done it. And they think that this act of blessing is potentially an act of cursing, a way of stitching them up. Whereas actually, it is an act of incredible generosity. Because what God's plan is in everything that has happened is to save and preserve them so that his plan for the blessing of the whole world through the children of Abraham might come about. And they begin to come to terms with what happened with Joseph, verse 21. Surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us detail there that we didn't get uh, back in chapter 37, this pleading of Joseph, his distress. It's also transactional in, in, in verse 37, but so personal here. Reuben said, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. And they didn't realize that Joseph could understand them. And then there's this moment where Joseph turns away and apparently finds a way not to smudge his Egyptian makeup as he weeps, but then dries his eyes and comes back and speaks to them. So look, what's going on? Well, look, there are two things, aren't there? God is doing something absolutely incredible. He is turning this, frankly, pretty hideous family into a people of his own possession. He is transforming these brothers. There's this moment of repentance where they they recognize the wrong that they have done 25 years before. 
They actually see God at work and he's transforming their hearts. He's transformed Joseph's heart. You see that in, in his memory of, uh, of the dream. You see that as, as time goes on in the things that he will say to his brothers in, in, in later chapters. God is at work in them, transforming them. And you sort of think, well, why couldn't God have just put them uh, somewhere nice and, um, you know, and there not been this famine? Uh, and you see it and you see, oh, God is at work, not just to keep them alive, but to transform them and make them like himself. Here, I think, is a point that we could dwell on for some moments. I don't know about you, but I have this tendency to think in very short-term horizons and to measure what God is doing in my life by kind of what's happening today and actually to measure the value of my life by what I achieve in, in sort of moment to moment. But actually God works in ways that I just don't understand. I've got very little idea what he's actually doing in my life at the moment and how he's actually using me. It's a funny thing, isn't it? But I think it's so important. You see, I didn't quite finish the story about that Welsh missionary. A local official got hold of some of the Bibles in Korean that were on board the General Sherman. And because the quality of the paper was quite good, he used them to wallpaper his house. And people started to come and read his wallpaper so that that house became a center for the spread of the gospel in Korea. And in fact, what looked like a massive failure over the years turned into the center of a massive gospel revival. And people would travel from great distances to come and read because it was the only access they had to the scriptures. It's extraordinary, isn't it? How God works in ways that we would never predict, that we may never see or understand until the end of time. Think about James Hannington. He died getting into Uganda, apparently on the orders of the king, Mwanza. And as he died, he said, you go and you tell your master, you go tell Mwanza that I have purchased the road to Uganda with my blood. Now, here's a bit of the story that most of you probably don't know. James Hannington had a son, imaginatively named James Hannington. Uh, and James Hannington Jr., we shall call him, though I don't believe that uh, that's how he was known. He was just known as James Hannington. Anyway, he was the only one alive for most of his life. Um, he became a clergyman. He was a curate up in uh, Newcastle uh, in a suburb called Jesmond. And um, from Jesmond, he decided that he would like to offer himself as a missionary and go to Uganda, the country where his father had been murdered. And do you know what? The most extraordinary thing. He ended up meeting the man who had killed his father. And more than that, he ended up baptizing him. So that the man who martyred James Hannington was baptized by James Hannington. The threads that God weaves through our lives and through history and through all the ways our different stories intersect is they're just beyond our finding out and beyond our imagining. So please, 
Whatever you face in your life, whatever you think you may or may not have achieved, actually know this, that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And he is able to take our lives, even if they feel pitiful and small, even if it doesn't feel as though there's really anything we can do to make a difference to anyone, even if it feels like the best efforts we make at serving God end up in futility and failure, it may just be that your Bible ends up as someone's wallpaper and that through that, God changes the world. Korea is now one of the biggest countries in terms of sending out missionaries into the rest of the world that there has ever been. Not all thanks to one man's wallpaper Bible, but certainly not without it. And actually, as we read the story of Joseph, it feels pretty kind of drawn out, doesn't it? I mean, chapter 42, chapter 43, chapter 44, that's the bit in the musical where I really start switching off and thinking, is it over yet? (laughs) Frankly. And yet, crucially, you see the intricate way that God is working out his purposes and not only saving his people, but shaping them, transforming them, and changing them. And sometimes it's in the darkest, slowest, most frustrating passages of our lives that God does the deepest work in us. So no matter what you're facing at the moment, trust it to him. Put yourself in his hands and believe that even in this, he is working for your good but also for the good of his world and his church. And though we don't yet see what he is doing, one day we will.